right. Okay. All right. Hi, my name is Jamie Kelly. I host a little fun podcast called Shakespeare on Screen. Every week <coughs> with a friend to talk about uh, just uh, Shakespeare adaptations on screen, whether that's uh, a recorded stage production, a film, or loose adaptations. Uh, everything and ev anything and everything Shakespeare related that's on screen is welcome in this podcast. And uh, I'm waiting to get someone who wants to talk about Lion King. It'll be done. Uh, this week, I have with me another vet of the Shakespeare online repertory company with me, Gorgo, my friend Gorgo. Hi, Gorgo. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. And we're meeting up to talk about the 1953 Academy Award winning Julius Caesar, starring Marlon Brando, James Mason, and Sir John Geigold. So a big all-star cast in this movie. And yes, I did say that right. It did win an Oscar. Which one? Um, it won for Best Art production interesting and i think it was a deserved win personally. yeah the art was one of the things i wanted to talk about yeah i mean there's plenty we can get into but uh the first question i ask every new guest gorgo is what's your relationship with shakespeare Ooh, um so i did a fair amount of shakespeare in um purely sort of summer stock theater uh kind of thing uh, prior to that i mean you know, you read some Shakespeare from time to time during your life. You know, mm -hmm. you memorize a few speeches in high school, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but mostly it was, in fact, just something cool to do over the summer. And what I discovered was that uh, I never met a Shakespearean actor I didn't like, um, <laughs> which in turn introduced me to Shakespeare, right? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. That's great. I, I didn't know you were... Uh like a had a couple of productions under your belt that's fantastic yeah i've been in four and five four or five or so but all entirely you know uh, uh summer stock kind of thing yeah well, no, that, that's still that still counts shakespeare <laughs> was 100 percent. I, I mean he, he he spent his days entertaining drunken uneducated masses most of the time and then he was entertaining rich snobs who were only <laughs> half paying attention. Oh, yeah. I mean, in through history, the vast majority of all the plays ever produced were produced by, you know, part-timers, amateurs, and rude mechanicals. Yep. <laughs> There's a reason what, what Midsummer Night's Dream is based on. <laughs> I always thought rude mechanicals would be a great name for a, for a troupe. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's somewhere. Someone's got to have done it. And if not, I have no idea yeah. how that's escaped the the lexicon. So, yeah, th this is a bit of an interesting play because I adore Roman history, but I have actually not seen this until like this year was the first year I ever like sat down and watched uh, any production of of Julius Caesar. Okay. Uh -huh. I have no idea why either. I think, I guess, a little bit like the historian snob in me was like, ooh, but Shakespeare got it wrong, therefore I can't see it. I was going to take a cheap shot at this play as history, but I figured I didn't need to. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I will say, I mean, I mean, the ones that are notorious for Shakespeare being the a, a bad historian are 
are the Henry the Sixth trilogy, where he is, and that whole cycle. That's where he's at his most Tudor propaganda and coming up with ridiculous things, as Horrible Histories points out. No, Richard the Third was two when the Duke of Somerset died. No, he wasn't some <laughs> child soldier. No, no, like that straight Maybe. up happened. <laughs> I think even calling them bad histories is a little rude, right? Like they, yeah. I mean, they're not histories. They're oh yeah, they're plays. Yeah, they're wonderful plays. Um, I'm I love them, but yes, they're uh, the not historical documents. Is the <laughs> there were any number of facts that Shakespeare did not give one half of one damn about? They include <laughs> things like geometry and astro- astronomy and, and apparently history too. History, geography, you know, yeah, plenty of things. Just like eh, whatever. Who will know or care or analyze my work and write dissertations years from now? Uh, so, but that being said, I, I do say that that Julius Caesar and and Antony and Cleopatra are on the better side and fairly accurate. I, I'd say both are about a B plus for histor- historical accuracy. Okay. Like I mean they. They're obviously based on Plutarch. That's what he's going off of. And so, as an adaptation of Plutarch, it's pretty spot on. Like the only problem with that is then that like a lot of historians take Plutarch to task because he's because he's not really a historian in the way we would define it. He's a biographer and he's looking at the past and say and he does write like what he does. He does. I'm forgetting the exact number, but it's a, I think it's twelve virtuous. Yeah, six, six virtuous Greeks and six virtuous Romans in his right. big biographies, and and so he adored Brutus. He he thought like he looked at Brutus and thought, wow, this guy is awesome. I love this guy. <laughs> this is a total virtuous Roman, and so this is a, and so his life of Brutus is a lionization. It's a total celebration of Brutus, as what Shakespeare does in this. Of making him into this noble martyr that only struck against Rome out of principle, or, or rather against Caesar out of principle. Right. It was nothing personal, and and Antony at the end commends him as being the only noble one of the conspirators. It's all very moving, and it's it's one of the reasons why it became a great play. It's very great stuff. Real Brutus, it's a bit more debatable. It's sure. kind of like you know, eh, yes and no, but also Julius Caesar is like, is he the saint that Antony portrays him? Not really. I mean, it's relatively rare in Shakespeare that you get. Okay, I want to be careful here. I was about to say it's relatively rare that you get like a pure villain, but of course you do. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's relatively rare that you get in Shakespeare somebody who isn't at least in some sense a worthy opponent for the characters um, Mm -hmm. that you more naturally care about. And, you know, I think one of the nifty things about this play is that, you know, I mean, a tragedy traditionally has one tragic hero, Mm -hmm. and it's almost impossible to point to who the tragic hero of this play, in fact, is. Yes, I can 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 say that, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, we can rule out the title character almost immediately, but but if we weren't using Shakespearean naming conventions, is it the tragedy of you know of Brutus or the tragedy of Casca or the tragedy of Mark Antony, right? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, definitely Brutus is the protagonist, I would say, of the play. But, I mean, yeah, Shakespeare naming conventions, it's, it's sometimes it's like Henry the Fourth Part Two in particular. Like Henry the Fourth is barely in the play. Right. Yeah. 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 And like, yeah, Julius Caesar also. Julius Caesar like dies, and like the, like no surprise, and like halfway, not even halfway, like a third of the way through the play, and then shows up as a ghost. <laughs> and even yeah. in the parts where the where he's alive, he's not even a a major character. No, and you get almost none of the, like, I don't know Plutarch especially well, but I read Suetonius in part for um, for research for this. And um, Suetonius emphasizes Shakespeare as just a kind of, you know, cold, uh, um, you know, grizzled veteran, you know, soldier, right? Yeah. And you get almost none of that in this play. He comes across as being like, I don't know, grandfatherly, if anything. You know, there's a story about Shakespeare who, you know, he was uh, Shakespeare, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, Caesar was kidnapped by pirates, right? Oh, and, yes, um, yes, yes. That's a legendary story. I love, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just don't see, uh, do you want to pause a second and tell it? Or do we oh. just want to go on without it? Well, you you go on and tell it. You were rep- you were citing it, so go on. I mean, the short form is that he's held ha- uh, for ransom by pirates, and he warns them that this is a bad idea. Um, and uh, they they ignore his warnings, and he pays off the ransom and is released. And I think a year after he is released, he, he finds them and tracks them all down, and he knows them by name and greets them without rancor. He plays cards with them and then has them all crucified. Yep. Right? And, well, you, you, you missed yeah. like one of the great stories earlier about which – I think to Shakespeare's credit, even though Julius Caesar is not in it much, he really captures perfectly the the, the tragedy that is Julius Caesar of the arrogance, of the pride, in that when Julius Caesar was held hostage by the pirates, like one, he he, he joked around but says like, yeah, I'm going to crucify you eventually. Like, I'm, I'm going to get yeah. free and I'm going to crucify you, which they just kind of yeah. looked at him like, yeah, sure you are. But the other part was that when he was told how much that he got for they had to pay right. for his ransom he was like annoyed he was like what that's not enough yep like the the greed of and like and the the pride of this man right right and, and there's just none of that in um in shakespeare he he just he comes across like a like sort of kindly grandfather you know well i don't know i mean and going into the performances so let's talk about this movie and like the performance that the actor playing Caesar, um, let me see if I can get the the actor's name. Sure. Um, Lewis Calhern. Right. Um, he is, and it's the dialogue too. It's just that that total, which I like very much, is they capture just that that kind of. Even though yes, I I can see the grandfatherly, but I also see like the just this total air of superiority even as he's about to die and like everyone's on their knees praying to him just like right. getting him to just bend a little bit just bend a little it's like no i am constant i am caesar and lesser men will bend and scrape but i am constant i am caesar i'm the one constant thing yeah yeah, yeah. everything else needs something to bend around and i guess it's me yeah well yeah no and like the stone like yeah and like i and that's also getting into performances, but but what Cassius cites earlier on when he's trying to sway Brutus 
of just that whole idea of of like how has caesar become this kind of like bigger like a god on earth because i know the guy i saved his life once right how the hell did he suddenly become this right yeah and yeah that's part of uh, the 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 shocking thing about history and at this time i mean this is a very political play and it's an eternally relevant play i mean without getting into it um like a i think it was 2017 yeah it was 2017 uh-huh. they 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 did a production where they had or they had a very clearly Donald Trump right version of of Julius Caesar yep be, be killed on stage i don't i never saw any clips of it other than like an image or, here or there and i have no idea what kind of wish fulfillment they they got out of that but okay yeah what's funny for that is that it actually offended the right wing which i mean on the face of it shouldn't have right like the whole point is that it was an unjust execution that deserved retribution and uh, that, you know, Caesar was, in fact, the greatest Roman. So in a weird sort of way, it's actually a, a compliment. But, but, I mean, I think we're covering on, and I love this, I think we're going to get into a little bit of a debate here, is like that, is that the play asks many times, like, is he? I mean, Antony's speech is is incredibly moving, and it's it does sway the masses, and it sways basically the audience to get you to be sad Caesar is dead after you've spent so long in in Brutus and Cassius's mind where Caesar is a monster. Yep. To then suddenly see the other side where it's like, no, 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 Caesar was awesome, and here's all the reasons why Caesar was awesome. And that is, and so you Caesar is an ambiguous figure, I feel. Well, I mean, just like what you were saying earlier, that other than like the only thing that you I I make out of Shakespeare's Caesar is is just the pride, really, uh, because because you you see earlier signs and what what Brutus and Cassius cite of just that he's he's basically wants to crown himself. That's all he really wants. He, and Rome does not have kings, uh, and like this living God on earth when that's not who he was or is. And that's, but meanwhile, then you have Antony cite all these reasons why Caesar is awesome. I mean, so, so one trick that, that writers use is that they take the introduction of a character as a sort of high leverage moment. Mm-hmm. And the very first thing that we see Caesar do is turn down the crown when it's offered to him. Right? That's the very first report that we get of any actual real-time action of Caesar's. Now, sure, he turns it down with the back of his hand, right? <laughs> yes. um, but he does turn it down. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, well, but we also see, like, the first real introduction to Caesar himself is is we see him uh, just looking and, and, and belittling, but also fearing at the same time Cassius, as he sees him in the, in the, above. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Um. I I want to pause and just talk about the we we were earlier talking about our production and 
it winning sure. the Oscar for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it also this movie also got nominated for Best Picture. Okay. I mean, what a sad difference of times of that. Shakespeare movies were one point like Oscar nominated movies, and one they they happened often, and and they were Oscar nominated movies. Now just you got Justin Kurzel's Macbeth was the last thing that ever happened, and no one saw it. So I mean, Oscars were a conversation of their own, but I oh, yeah. but I will sure, say that. Enough. Yeah, every year there is something nominated that has no chance at all of winning. They just nominate it so they sound smart, you know. Yeah, true enough. Um, Brando was also nominated for Best Actor, and it was his third right. consecutive nomination, and deservedly so. And I think we could save that for sure. a little discussion later on. But boy, oh boy, like watching this movie, it was just well, maybe I'll say it right now. Just like yeah, my 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 first reaction the first time I ever watched this movie was like. Boy, oh boy, Brando really is a good actor. I mean, as much as we, it's easy to caricature and ridicule him. Yep. It's like, damn, he is a good actor. Yeah. No, it's easy to laugh at a Brando impersonator. Yeah. It's actually hard to laugh at Brando, right? Like just any two seconds of actually watching one of his performances and you're, yeah. you know, freaking in. Um, like I mean, watch. Well, I mean, I was just thinking of The Godfather, right? Like, oh, it yeah. takes two seconds to yeah. for him to just create a world. Yeah, I, I, the first time I ever watched him in The Godfather, it was just jaw dropping. It was just yeah. what a performance. And same with his performance in Apocalypse Now. Even the even as Jor-el in Superman, it's just and that's the the annoying thing because. All the gossip is out there. It's just that, unfortunately, Brando knew he was a genius and had this titanic prima donna ego. Yep. And became more and more of a nightmare to work with as time went on. Unless you were Francis Ford Coppola and had an equal ego to kind of put it in check. Right. But yeah. Otherwise, just it's like the stories. Fun documentary to watch. The um, the island of lost souls. It, okay. It's it's about the making of the island of Doctor Moreau. Right. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, and and a lot how how basically the 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 original director was fired and then they hired a replacement director, and it's also everyone wanted to work on the movie because the original director got got Marlon Brando to be on in the movie, but poor Brando was dealing with his daughter committing suicide and, but he came on to the set, but he also was being this kind of lazy jerk. Okay. And just kind of like insane where, where the director just agreed to every ridiculous thing Brando suggested, like, Ooh, can I be in like white skin? Like, like my face covered in white suntan lotion sure marlin um and can i can i take off a hat and reveal i have a dolphin's head at the back uh <laughs> sure marlin <laughs> and just, just like googling brando dr Barreau to see what images we get holy cow yeah yeah that's very nearly a like divine moment and when i say divine i mean the john waters divine <laughs> yeah yeah so it, it's 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 kind of like um Truman Capote vibe almost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah. But this this is early Brando where he hadn't gotten to that place, and he's he's a really phenomenal performance in this movie. Yeah, I was I was surprised by how easily he could pull. This is a small thing, but how easily he could pull off the like mid Atlantic received uh, uh, pronunciation accent. Yeah. Um, Brando just always struck me as being, I don't, and I don't know in what sense I mean this, but he, he always seemed just sort of quintessentially American to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, yeah. you watch him in on the waterfront, and he just, you know, is a Philadelphia dock worker. Um, mm-hmm. And and maybe that's just him, you know, being him and selling you on a part. But, um, you know, some actors can shed that and some can't. There's a production of um, Hamlet that starts with um, Jack Lemon of all people. It's one of the guards. Oh, yeah, that, that's uh, Brana's, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, it's hard to take, right? Like, <laughs> it's just hard to take Jack freaking Lemon as, you know, a Danish um, um, uh, soldier. Yeah, well... But Brando uh, just disappears completely. Yeah, well, well, and you meant disappearing. I, I want to comment on this, but and this is part of the play, but, like, the fascinating thing is is just Antony does not really make an impression as a character until he makes he sees Caesar's body and then makes that legendary speech. Yep. He's just like, and that's just the willingness of Brando to be just to just disappear in the background and be nothing but kind of eye candy for the first half is way to go on him. Yeah, I mean, his his opening line is actually a kind of biblical pun. Um, so there's, uh, what is it? I think it's Luke 3, 4, but I might very well have the chapter and verse wrong. Anyway, a uh, centurion is explaining the nature of true authority, and, and the centurion says, um, I have been placed in authority. I say, to, I say to my people, come, and they come. I say to them, go, and they go. <laughs> um, and Brando's line, so in the beginning, he's actually a kind of mid-level priest. Um, yeah. Uh, or at least he's carrying out a priestly function, right? Like what Romans meant yeah. by priests is complicated, yeah. right? It's um, different. But he, but but yeah, he quotes, he describes himself as the centurion described his people. He says, when Caesar says it is time to go, we go. Yes. Um, uh, and yeah, like I think that's, yeah, it it, it certainly shapes her making some kind of illusion. Um, yeah. And well, but but it gets also to that idea yeah. of of him of, of how much Caesar has now become Moses, if not Christ, in terms of just how everyone will follow you now and the power right. of that. And that's alarming. That's why Brutus and Cassio are like, "What the hell? Like we're a republic. That's not no no. That's not how things work." Um, so, yeah, yeah. Although, if that quote is an actual illusion, mm-hmm. right? Um, if that quote is an actual illusion that he's comparing Caesar not to Moses or to Jesus, but to a lowly Roman centurion, it would actually be a significant demotion for him. Mm. Ah, well, you know, uh, Shakespeare yeah. would choose whatever he chose to do. Sure. Uh, I don't know. I mean, to say that, like, basically at that point, the way it, it, it is in that context, though, it's also basically saying that Caesar basically controls the tides themselves in terms of how sure. powerful he is at that point. 
and that oh, that yeah. was true at that point. And I do love, quite frankly, the the early the opening scene. And when I had a when I spoke about Coriolanus, that it must be said, it is transparently clear Shakespeare's politics are almost invisible in his plays. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I'm pretty damn positive about is, boy, is he not a populist, and it really shows in, <laughs> in his Roman plays. Is like yep. he thinks nothing of the people of just like the mob that can be easily swayed. And this play is the yep. pinnacle of that, of just that it opens with everyone celebrating Caesar, even though, as they said, like, what is Caesar coming from? He's coming from defeating Pompey, who you used to, who you used to, like, worship just like you were worshiping Caesar right now. Right. You're celebrating that he defeated a Roman. And and so you can kind of see that the people are are incredibly fickle because the, at one point they are swayed by a Brutus only to then be swayed by Antony on a dime. Well, and, and that is actually another moment of escalation, right? So mm-hmm. um, before the play started, Caesar had four triumphs in, I think four months, something like that. Oh, and yes. yes with did. the rest of the, he was very careful, even though he was winning civil wars, he was very careful always to find some foreign patsy officially to celebrate over. Yes. Um, and then declaring an actual triumph over over Pompey, having gone out of his way not to do that the three times previous, marks a kind of chilling um, progression. Yeah. Uh, well, was... yeah, it's it it is quite frankly. I mean, in the that's also when you know like the full context of history, which you know Shakespeare doesn't get into, but right. it is fun to know these kinds of things. Is like that. That's also Shakespeare. Oh, no, Shakespeare. I'm doing it now. <laughs> that's Caesar trying to like one up Pompey. I'm just like, yeah. ooh, Pompey and and Sulla did three consecutive triumphs. I'm gonna do four consecutive triumphs. Yep. And the fourth will be Pompey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like insane. Like um, yeah. The and and so. We haven't talked about. Uh, so, okay. Let's get into a little bit of, of well, one like well, I got sidetracked from art direction though. The, yeah, one, yeah. this movie is like um, is a gorgeous black and white movie, yeah. and it was shot intentionally in black and white apparently. Sure. I mean, I mean, when I was young, yeah, sure, I was like, I hate black and white, but more and more, I think black and white, whenever it's an intentional choice. There's something that really can be very powerful. And I think it works because the first half of the play really plays as this wonderful mix of a thriller and and what the director brings. Yes. Of just making this play into a thriller for the first half of just like you're waiting and waiting and waiting. Is Caesar going to be killed? Like, is Brutus going to decide to join in the conspiracy? And and just like my my heart was racing as I was watching the assassination scene of just like, wow. And just all these warnings, just, I mean, shocker. Shakespeare is a great writer of all the warnings and all the signs that like Caesar don't go, don't go, don't go. And he goes. And even at that, I I think that's exactly right. So the very first thing that I noticed about the, the actual art direction, right. So, Mm -hmm. So the director's commentary on the play is that one of the first camera angles we get is an establishing shot of the Roman eagle. 
right? Uh-huh. Um, only it's not a Roman eagle. It's done in a deco style, and it's got heavy, like, black and white shadowing. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking it's Nazi regalia, right? Yeah. So, okay, the director is doing Nazi things. I mean, the play is made in the 1950s, so it's within 10 years of the end of World War II. Um, and, and my first thought was, okay, that's that's where he's taking it. But but when they were playing off Caesar as being the populist, I realized that was probably wrong. And the eagle they're quoting isn't isn't the Nazi eagle, but is the Maltese Falcon. It's a film noir. Yes. Right. Like it's basically a suspense detective uh, story. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, you almost want freaking Bogart as Cassius or something like that. <laughs> yes. Yes. But, but yeah, he's absolutely turning into a murder mystery. Um, and the same with all those big outdoor shots that are still somehow claustrophobic because of the way he focuses in on yeah. the faces of individual people. Um, uh, right, like he shows a plaza full of people and it's still claustrophobic because the camera follows the corridors that lead to the plaza. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that being said, though, and uh, the director... Um, I want to get his full name. I know it's, his last name is Mankiewicz, but uh, Joseph yep. Mankiewicz. Yeah, yep. Joseph. Right. Joseph Mankiewicz. Um, he would go on to direct the biggest Hollywood spectacle of all time. And no, I'm not talking about Avengers Endgame. <laughs> I, I'm Cleopatra, that nightmare uh, okay. production of all time. <laughs> and yep. I, I pity poor, poor Joseph Mankiewicz <laughs> as he made that movie. I need to read like there's a book out there that that writes about the hell that, of production that was that movie. Sure. I'm just that he had to deal with his star going having an affair and it being gossip headlines and also his star needing a a tracheotomy at one point and just all the every nightmare a director has. Yeah. Even though he had like a boatload of money, so he didn't have to worry about that part. Yeah, well, I mean, I gather that under the old studio system, star management was a big part of the director's job. <laughs> yep, yes, it was. In fact, I suspect it still is, but... <laughs> yeah. Oh, and he had to also deal with Richard Burton at his apparently peak alcoholism. Right. Yeah, but anyways, uh, but the spectacle in this movie, even though, yeah, it, at the same time, it's a noir, but it also is a true Roman epic and boy, oh boy, those big crowd scenes when Antony and and Brutus give the the speeches they give, mm-hmm. that was like a sight to behold. And this is the magic of cinema. And those are all real people there. That that is something that like is amazing about the old movies. And that's why I say big spectacle because when you watch Cleopatra, when you watch Julius Caesar, like those are those crowd shots of people. Those are people. That's not CGI like and twenty real people and then CGI ballooning it out to a big army right that's like a real amount of people there and just that's like something yeah um also for so this is like a gorgeous movie i mean i of the movies i've reviewed so far with maybe like kurzel's Macbeth is the only one that can really give it a run for its money this is a truly gorgeous movie I do yeah, mean absolutely. that. Every yeah. frame is just a picture. It's a painting. It's beautiful. But the the thing I, I also noticed this time around, it's it's not the first time, so now I notice some of the smaller details. In some of the the clever costume choices, you have Caesar and Brutus wear 
white robes, and you have Antony and Cassius wear dark robes. Right. Almost like the Western of just like the color coding to clue you in. Uh huh. And I like that touch. Yep. And then there's the people who wear plain robes and the people who have the um, uh, that sort of Greek embroidery. Um, yes. Around the neckline, yep. and that cuts across the dark plain. Mm. Um, or the dark light one, right? So yeah. you've got Caesar wearing light and embroidered, and uh, uh, um, sorry, uh, um, <laughs> Cassius, right, right, yeah, and Cassius wearing um, dark but embroidered. Right? Yes. Um, and then Antony is dark but plain, mm-hmm. right? Anyway, you've got a truth table going on. Yes. The and and so let's get into a little bit of performances. So sure. So Sir John Guy Gold, um, probably the biggest Shake, not probably he what is the biggest Shakespearean actor in this particular movie. Sure. And he was one of the biggest Shakespearean actors, period, of all time. You, you do know he played Caesar in another production ten years later. Oh, in the was it the Heston one? Uh huh. Oh. Oh, and he played Caesar. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I've heard bad things about that one, other than Heston. Like, Heston is the only good thing that people say about that one. I, yeah. I watched a fair amount of it just to have something to contrast to, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, and it was it was done in the style of the time, right? Uh, so... Yeah. And the 70s was sort of a bad time for, for big sweeping histories. Yeah. Um, so. 70s was the New Age, like the Hollywood New Age era, where it was all the independent, new spirited directors. It was all about Lucas, Spielberg, Coppola, and and guys like that instead of just the old studio people. Yeah, yeah. But there was something kind of, I mean, you're right, but I'm thinking particularly in the early 70s. When was that one made, like 71 or 72? Something like so, that. So culturally, it's still 60s. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I, I mean, okay, so Kubrick does 2001 and 1968. It's not like they don't know how to do epics, but mm-hmm. the fashion is for tight, gritty little dramas, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, your average you know, Robert Redford movie takes place in, I don't know, two basements and one street, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, it was a it was a 1970. So yeah, that's yeah. like the end of the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, but culturally, all the decades are two years off of what the calendar says. <laughs> so 62 was the 50s. 72 was the 60s. Um, yeah. Well, but anyway, so um, so you were saying about um, about uh, real good. Um, good production. I would recommend um, checking out, other than the one we're raving about right now uh is the bbc production is um it, yeah it's bbc budget but it's directed by herbert wise who did i claudius uh-huh. and he brings like the same quite frankly brilliance of direction he brought to i claudius to shakespeare it's a match made in heaven in my book and so yep. that's a one worth checking out it's a pretty solid and that one also is unabridged and it's a little okay. bit bloodier that they, like they're they legit soak their arms in, bl- in Caesar's blood in that one. Right. It's a visceral image. Yeah, like that's the one thing a little bit holding this, this back. And like that particular scene was like, ooh, 
50s censorship. Yeah. Yeah. You get the idea that the guy who wrote Titus Andronicus wasn't like <laughs> bashful about a little stage blood. No, no. Well, no, yeah. You got to get the a, li- a little bit of the that that excites people. Sure. And uh and so that it and so Geigold as as Cassius Cassius can be played many ways, like just like any character can be played many ways in in a Caesar in in any Shakespeare play. I've seen Cassius's that are much more sincere and mm-hmm. a little bit like Antony is that this is a very conniving and scheming and manipulative Cassius. Oh yeah, agreed. He has a lean and hungry look. He has a what? A lean and hungry look, such men are. Oh yes, oh yes, 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 yes. He does, yes, yeah. And he, he is. I mean, the darkness and how it just flat out. Other other versions don't play it up, but it's just like he, he tricks Mason's Brutus into into joining the conspiracy. Yeah. Even though it's like it's on his mind, he basically just ends up coming up with, hey. Give all these fake letters to Brutus, urging him to do this. Yeah. And so it's just—he's a straight-up manipulator. Yeah, and 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 certainly Shakespeare. Shakespeare often grants almost I don't know like magic powers to manipulators, right? Like <laughs> he, he he is clearly deeply impressed with the ability of, you know, a schemer to scheme. Yes. Um, and yes. yeah, Cassius is clearly. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, he, he clearly has the same mutant power yeah. that Iago had. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that was what I was gonna say. He has a little bit of Iago, a little bit of Buckingham, and Richard yep. III, all in in like this Cassius. Yeah. And I like it. It it makes it a little bit hard to feel sorry for Cassius towards the end, but yeah. It's also just a complicated story, and characters are three dimensional in Shakespeare's plays. Yeah, I I agree. Like, I want Cassius to be scheming, but if you push it too far over the top, then yeah. it's not just that it's hard to feel sorry for him at the end, it's that it's hard to believe the end. Mm-hmm. Right? If you make him a total dirtbag, then the end is nothing but a temper tantrum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially, like, their final conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Or... It's not... It, it's just knocking the board over when you lose a game. <laughs> it can be, yeah. I mean, that's kind of a little bit how it is in the BBC version, but it's also that Cassius is much more, like I said, sincere, and he's a bit more just this passionate loony. Yeah. Almost. Um, and this Brutus, um, I mentioned earlier before we started recording to Gorgo, to Gorgo that that um, this play normally, like, unabridged is about three hours long, so it's a... What they trimmed, they made it into a really tight two-hour drama a solid two-hour drama yeah and and the biggest thing that they like some of the things that they trim down are shakes is um brutus's debate within himself uh about whether or not in making his decision to to strike against caesar which i think one is is mankiewicz choosing to you just how much of the the soliloquy he will keep mm-hmm. and accepting the just the language of cinema and also yes. make sure this isn't a too long of a movie 
Yeah. But the, all the end results are like this is a very a fairly decisive Brutus. And for me, at least, what I the way I, I interpret um, Mason's Brutus is that this Brutus is like many Brutuses is very much moral, and I think he captures the utter sincerity of of the Brutus. Really, it is just like it's nothing personal, Caesar. It's really is just like I don't like what your policies are. Yeah, yeah. You're a menace. I gotta stop you for that reason alone. And so I, I think mentioned the right way to play Lex Luthor is the same way. <laughs> not not a villain as such. He simply distrusts the existence of that much power. Yes. Well, yeah, I love that. But, yes. That was the best yeah. Lex Luthor's. Um, no, what I was thinking of with with um, Nimkevich, um, uh, Brutus is that so Shakespeare wrote of course for stage and there are things that you that cameras can do that stages can't mm-hmm, um, of course in particular you can get up close to a face um, in a way that sort of the groundlings from the back rows can't and you can play with shadows and so on um, so the point is one of the reasons he doesn't have the monologues is that it makes Brutus look more decisive um, mm-hmm. and by making him look more decisive he looks more heroic um, but another reason is he doesn't need it you can you can actually see those thoughts. He can show them to you in a way that um, that a Shakespearean actor just couldn't. And that's why you need the dialogue and you need the soliloquies to really understand the thoughts going right. in. And I, yeah, I do agree to that. Um, and I really think Mason's Brutus is a phenomenal Brutus in this. Yes, he gets outshined by Marlon Brando as Mark Antony, which will get to next but sure but who wouldn't <laughs> yeah uh, Pacino Martin Sheen uh, everyone who tries to like act or or beat Martin Brando Marlon Brando just doesn't work doesn't happen yeah I mean <laughs> yeah I'm trying to think of anyone right um <laughs> Yeah. I guess. Oh, um. Well, anyway. Um, Anyways. Uh, yeah. but the. So I really think that just. This Brutus really does mean when, when he says, like, I offer my dagger and I will plunge it in me when Rome yeah. has no need of me. And essentially, by the end, he he does do that because now it's just like, well, I have lost. I guess Santony is the one who's on the right side of history, technically. Yep. In terms of yeah. might makes right. So, I guess that's it. Uh-huh. And real great extras, by the way, also in this movie of just like the crowds of just like some people screaming, or or people just having those couple like three lines. Yeah, like they they bring a lot to the to the roles, proving the age old axiom: there are no small roles, there are only small actors. Yep. Um, the cobbler at the beginning—that's um, part of what made me think of it as a noir film. I don't know exactly why, but just the sheer cragginess of his face and the oh, yeah. that they brought out. Yeah. Um, like it's it's hard even to believe that that was shot outside. You know. Yeah. Um, well, not 
well, not just that. Well, another one, I like some of the faces, some of the senators, they're like, yeah, it's out of a noir movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the big Caesar supporter right after the assassination they talked to. He's just like, oh, well, and they're re- reassuring him, but it's like yeah, kind of hollow reassurance. So, so let's talk about the funeral oration for a second. Um, okay. And so in general, I prefer it quieter and more ironic, right? And sort of one drinking game is on which repetition of the phrase they are honorable men who's <laughs> actively engaged in manipulating the crowd. Yes. Um, but I prefer it to be quiet. Now, Brando, though, is clearly shouting down a crowd. And that's probably right. But yeah. it means that you can't be sly and insinuating. You have to be, you know, needy. And uh, sort of what I'm wondering is how you plan on playing that Sunday. <laughs> oh, Oh, this is a preview, and this, no one else will ever know this. Um, you know, okay, this is fun. Um, like, go ahead, fight with Brando. I'll listen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I think what I want to do with my Mark Antony is really go for go for a kind of Mark Antony that, that uh, is dismissed by everyone. And I kind of want to explore maybe giving him something of an accent, like a a southern accent. Interesting. Of just that, of that you think that it's just oh, you know, it's like what people think of when they first approach Bill Clinton or George W. Bush, like oh, this guy's nothing. But then just yep. you find out when he gives that speech is like oh no, this guy is not nothing, and he has that touch. He has that yeah. touch that with the people that other people don't have. And that's something I really appreciate that Shakespeare brought to Mark Antony. It's something I honestly, quite frankly, don't see in the real Mark Antony, but for this character, it's phenomenal. And this is also because we also get to see Antony and Antony and Cleopatra. We see Antony as a shadow of his self. Gosh, that would have been amazing to see what, what Brando would have done with that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but this, this one, and yes, you're, you're dead on. And I like that. What, what you're observing is like this is this version of the speech is him wooing the crowd and so he has to fight the crowd just like brutus had to just prior to that yep and what i think he really does in the which i love is the film touches is is those quick little close-ups and at uh-huh. one point when when Brutus turns or when Antony turns around and he just connivingly smiles, especially uh-huh. at the end, right after he's he's won the crowd, it's like, wow, none of that. You didn't believe a word that you said. It was all just you doing PR, cynical PR. And so, I I don't want to ride a hobby horse, but I think I, I think those quick cuts might actually have been a quote. Um, one of my favorite scenes from the Maltese Falcon has a very similar series of quick cuts through all the conspirators uh, oh. at the very end of it. It's mm-hmm. it's just after, in fact, they give the speech about why they had to do the thing to take the thing. Mm-hmm. And um, the camera cuts from face to face to face, all of them still, um, and all of them showing naked greed. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know if the scene was a quote, but but it was certainly a tro- at least a trope. Oh yeah, well th- you have to have the cuts to the to the 
crowd to see them slowly go from hostile to him to being wooed to by the end wanting to kill yeah. for him. And that's all yeah. incredibly important. Oh yeah. But yeah, thank you for putting it on me, Gorgo. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I am going up against Brando. Go, go yeah, ahead and explain to us why you're smarter than Brando. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, well, I never will. Um, so you can't even retaliate because I haven't dipped apart yet. <laughs> huh. uh, so, who are you gonna play? I don't know. Uh, we'll, um, we'll find out. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so, wow, this that was a. It's just right after I saw. I mean, we we said before, just like boy oh boy, Brando can act. Just like he, it's one of Shakespeare's most famous soliloquies, and it, even before really when he when he clenches his fist as he's looking at at Caesar, and you can feel the fire in him, the rage. Yeah. Almost Stanley Kowalski coming out of just like, bam, like he is ready and he is swearing vengeance. Yeah. Although, so, so funny thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, Brando was a method actor. Um, yeah. And, you know, big on method from day one. Oh, yeah. Um, but in yeah. this particular film, yeah. he's doing a very Olivier thing, which is close to the opposite of, of method acting. Yeah. Which is he holds his entire body perfectly still except the one part that's doing the work of a scene. Um, so, it, like it's if you watch Olivier, like if you watch Olivier, his hands are often hanging at some strange, you know, angle and like utterly unmoving. And Brenda does a lot of that here. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if he's just acting against type, or if his idea was more like, well, this is Shakespeare, you have to be high-minded, or maybe he's just subverting expectations that we had for Brando because, you know. Yeah. Well, I think maybe it's in a way that is his method of just like just choosing the way that to play Antony because Antony is very much this brilliant calculating politician and that's the surprise of Antony because for the first hour of the movie he's again barely in it and and what you see you yeah. just think like he's kind of this this grunt of Caesar that you yeah. you find out he's he's a, he's a, an even a more zealous and dangerous enemy than Caesar to the conspirators. Yeah, and they they cover here also the infamous the infamous proscriptions, which were just no one at the time defended them, and no one can defend them. They're just horrendous things. It was no one can justify three thousand people being summarily executed. Right. Yeah, and that's where you see, and I do like that. Even though Brando can 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 sway you, and you're really like, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, though, he's also terrifying in this movie. Yeah. And just like that, and just how coldly, and I do mean that coldly when he's clinically, I'm like, a, I don't want to do a comparison game, even though we have been doing a little bit, but, but Anthony, being Anthony, in the BBC version is drunk as he's listing all the people for them to kill. Oh, interesting. Which I, I like that touch, but this one is yeah, there's wine in in the shot, but like no. He is stone cold sober and just very comfortable and just clinical about it. Like, yep, this person dies, this person dies. Yeah. And that's the 
the monstrosity of these these men and so that's what's good on brando i mean he i mean he, he you can have the, those those kinds of flashes i mean reading his process for getting into a Vito Corleone was like, and what you were talking about method of the method yeah. touch was like the cotton balls. Like why are the cotton balls? It's like, well, I, I thought that, that Vito Corleone is so dangerous, but the, the chilling thing is yet you have to be so close to him as he speaks. And yeah. because you're so close, he can strike at any moment. Nice. That's yeah. Like, so that's part of his performance, I think, is that is that he is so kind of Olivier-like, just, just still kind of going for an affect. But that's part of because we almost never see the real Antony. The, the closest I think we ever get to the real Antony is that moment where it's just him alone with Caesar. Yeah. Well, or I mean, or that moment at the very end where. Um... Yeah. Uh, where all we see him is on his horse, getting getting ready to give the order to finally kill all the people that he started killing three acts ago. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's something reptilian about it. Like he's not even, you know, celebrating. He's not, you know, it, it's it's he he gives the order the same way he might order, you know, a pound of steak ground up, right? Yeah. Well, that's the chilling, and I do like that. And you were mentioning Nazi. Germany other and like that's where and you know for good or ill the, the tragedy part of the tragedy is yes these men might have had noble intentions but they created something that can be perceived and it was certainly argued in kind of the negative revisionism against the Emperor Augustus that these conspirators created something worse something that was a flat out dictatorship a brutal awful dictatorship if you want to see it that way. Yeah. I mean, Augustus and I'm doing a podcast series about him right now. He's a very divisive figure, but he's a very hard figure to put your, your hand, your finger on compared to Antony is kind of like Antony Caesar. It's like, okay, we basically can more or less have a consensus on this person. Like Augustus is kind of like this riddle for the ages. Sure. And unfortunately, and the one kind of thing I, I'm always a little bit annoyed is like he's in this play, but he's such a non-entity in this play. Yeah, yeah. He's just like Octavius, and he's just there. And yeah, I like, feel like that's something Shakespeare's fond of with his histories, is just tossing people in that we know will be a big deal later. Yeah. Um, Luckily, it becomes a bigger character in Antony and Cleopatra. But yeah. Yeah, yeah so... What do we any want closing thoughts? Um, I mean, we have not yet talked about so there's a, a you know, if you do any quick Googling and check out some of the more scholarly sources like Spark Notes, um, mm-hmm. they will tell you that um, part of why Shakespeare wrote this play was that at the time it was sort of foreseeable that Elizabeth would die at some point and she had oh, no clear yes. air. Yes. And so he wanted to write a play about, you know, the political dangers of unclear secession and so on. Um, uh, yeah, that and Richard II. Yeah, this just this general paranoia about the succession not being clear and removing a king. And what does that mean if you remove a king? 
Yeah. I mean, I don't love that interpretation because it means we have to believe that Shakespeare is sort of going out of his way to antagonize whoever ends up seceding Elizabeth. <laughs> right. Oh, well, you do have... concern, you suck, signed <laughs> Right? I don't, I don't see the percentage in that. Um, well, I think we, and I've spoken about this before, but I'll, I'll say right now, just like this little digression, but uh, I, in terms of like propaganda plays, of course, the, the Henry the Six cycle and basically all of his his um, English histories, mm-hmm. except for King John and Henry VIII, are naked t- Tudor propaganda. Absolutely. I mean, it's Shame. not as clear when you watch like Richard II, but I mean, but it's still there. Whereas, but he would do a Stuart propaganda play. That's Macbeth. Macbeth is the most like flagrant i think more in some ways even more than richard the third it's like flagrant steward propaganda because it's just because james the first is a plot point in the play and and macbeth is motivated by his fears of this very loosely defined prophecy that's warning that hey banco's kids are one day going to become king Huh? Right. huh? Not, wink, wink, and everyone at the at, at the audience, especially. Hey, hey, Shakespeare, I really like your plays. I want you to become my royal entertainers yeah. instead of Lord Chamberlain's. Okay, yes, Your Majesty. Here's a play. What? Yeah. I am prophesied to be a great ruler that will yeah. lead a thousand kings. Ho ho, William. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, he was not bashful about how he handled the people who signed his checks. That's yeah. sure. And why should he be? <laughs> sure. Um, Especially when, when like there was plenty of examples of the of what happened if you didn't at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who had any negative opinion got their head cut off. <laughs> well, right. And I mean, um, right. So I mean, yeah. You, you, you know, you don't want to end up with a Cromwell, right? He, yeah. He'll shut no. the theater down. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I agree with you. I don't like to interpret it that way. One, quite quite frankly, because it, it doesn't seem like that. I think that's more of a, just the thematic element and just the thematic concern at the time. Yeah. You also got to remember, though, that Shakespeare always was never afraid to follow commercial trends. Yep. And so like the. Uh, the Plutarch's parallel lives were were translated into English, and they were that the equivalent of a bestseller at the time. Yep. So he struck while the iron was hot. It's like, ooh, Roman Roman like parallel lives are, are a hit. I'm gonna make a play on it. Sure. Especially when there's no pesky thing called copyright in at that time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the Decameron. And even even like Titus Andronicus sometimes I like I honestly feel makes most sense if you read it as a parody of uh, the kind of things that Kid was up to at the same time. Wow. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. Um, but yeah, like I might I, I might conceivably believe that you know he had something vaguely on his mind, right, about mm-hmm. yeah. the succession. Um, y- you know, writers are after all people, and they have. Yes. You know, I mean, as much as as we understand it from that perspective, I think it's also we have to understand that this is 
And one of the reasons why Julius Caesar has endured much more than some of the other plays is because this is really touching on some some eternal questions that we always have. It's just the nature yeah. of ruling, the nature of power, and the motivations behind the people that, that act. And this is basically a revolutionary play. This is a revolutionary play. And Shakespeare, yes, he's not a populist, but he's also skeptical about the revolution, the idea of the revolution, I think. Because you can see this in Julius Caesar, you can see it in you can see it in um in Richard the Second and and many of his plays that really deal with this kind of subject matter is is one that it's it's human beings, so it's like as much as yes, Caesar has become a living god, you have Cassius say, Well, hey, wait a minute, no he's not. Like, I know he's yeah. definitely not. But also at the same time, Cassius is this jealous, vain person. And you have Brutus, who's a moral man, but he's a moral man that can be used and exploited by a person like Cassius. So what does yeah. that mean of a society? And what do you have with Antony? Is he is he sincere? Does he really miss Caesar? And is he really just trying to bring justice? Or is he just this vain, bloodthirsty opportunist? And, and the thing to notice is that, you know, and you, you said this earlier, I think you're exactly right, is that and those are the same people who gravitate towards any power structure. Yeah. Like there never was a government that you couldn't, you know, find exactly those people inhabiting it. Yes. You know, the, the opportunist and the 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 easily pointable zealot and, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> I think that's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. Unfortunately, the and what why shakespeare has endured what we've what you've just touched on is is that he wrote about people and unfortunately their greatest triumph and their greatest tragedy is they don't change yeah there's a song to, oh, go ahead. technology may change but people not really there's this ongoing argument in cognitive science about how much of you know human cognitive machinery is built in and how much of it is inherited from your environment and shakespeare is actually one of the most powerful arguments for the people who believe that it's largely built in um, in the sense that he is capable of writing perfectly persuasively about people you have actually freaking met, right? <laughs> um, even though, you know, he never made it more than, what, 80 miles from his hometown in his life, right? Yeah. He, he has personal experience with almost none of the human race, and yet he describes, you know, everyone so perfectly well. I remember when my, um, when my father died, how very much like Hamlet, the whole, like, thing felt, right? Like, yeah. Um, absolutely. You know, I, I, I absolutely had Uncle Claudius, you know, and I mean, okay, I never had him killed or anything. But, <laughs> um, but there was the same dynamic. Um, yeah. You know, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, that, that Shakespeare can describe people. Um, and I mean, and he even translates well, right? Which is funny because you think that at the core of what he does well is, um, is language. And obviously he loses something when you take that away from him, but... Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, you know, have you ever done any of uh, Kurosawa's uh, Shakespeare's? For this? No, I'd love to. And uh, no. I'd love to have you back on to talk about that. That sounds phenomenal to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I would be interested, right? Like do Throne of Blood or Ron or something. Yeah. Um, and see how Shakespeare does in an entirely different cultural matrix. And the answer is it's still real recognizable. Yeah. Because people are people and he knew us. Yes, very true. Well, it's also the Japanese got... got finally did the reverse of what 
we Americans kept on doing of turning their samurai movies into westerns. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This has been phenomenal, Gorgo. I I love this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Great talk. Thank you. All right. All right. See you guys I'll next week. I'll see you week. Sunday. I'll see you Sunday. Bye bye.